Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. In July of 1995, the city of Chicago experienced a heat wave that gripped the entire city for over a week. And on July 13th, the heat actually reached its peak of 106 degrees. Now, during that week of intense heat, Chicago had turned into basically an urban heat island. Most of the city's brick and mortar buildings, along with all the concrete and all the asphalt streets, they absorbed a tremendous amount of heat during the day, and they didn't release it quickly at night. They released very little bit of the heat overnight. So that means that the apartments in the city became like ovens. And the mayor at the time, if you're from the Midwest, you know he was Richard Daly, and he stated the obvious. He had a habit for that. He stated the obvious. He said, it's hot. (laughs) It's hot out there. We all walk out there. It's very, very, very hot. And we thank him for that press conference. But the heat continued, becoming not just a a nuisance, but a full-fledged killer. The Cook County morgue, where Chicago's located, started overflowing with bodies and refrigerator trucks actually had to be brought in to store the dead. Workers averaged 13 autopsies an hour, 13 an hour, but the bodies just kept coming. And in the end, the heat wave was actually blamed for 739 deaths. Now, how did so many people die in a simple heat wave? Well, when they went through the official reports looking at the people who had died, they found a steady and constant theme, social isolation. You see, many of the people were older. These people were living alone, and that is where people run into trouble for a lot of reasons. Loneliness sets in. Depression can set in. The feeling of a lack of purpose, a lack of contentment. Consider the man who recently wrote into a pornographic company asking them to film a very specific scene for him. And he was willing to pay top dollar for it if they would produce it and give him the video. Here's what he wanted. He wanted a pornographic actress to sit fully clothed on the floor and then look into the camera and say, you are loved, things are bad now, but they won't always be. Suicide is not the answer. Well, they made the movie clip for the man, but it goes to show how desperate people are feeling, how alone. And here is where Hebrews chapter 13 finds us. If you want to find true contentment in your life, even in your pain, learn to put on the love of Jesus Christ, love for strangers, love for those who suffer, and love for your spouse. And most of all, respond in love to your Savior instead of chasing after money. We start with verse 1 in Hebrews 13. The text says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. 
Now, the book of Hebrews was first written to first century Christians who had lost so much in their life because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You remember from our studies that they had lost their friends, their family. Some had lost their jobs. Some had even lost their very lives. And that is when the temptation to give up comes in, to give up on Christ. And so in chapter 11, the author already told them, he said, don't give up on your faith. And then in chapter 12, he told them, don't give up on your hope. And now here in chapter 13, don't give up on your love. And as he tells us in verse one, he says, let brotherly love continue. Don't stop loving one another. This is where you find true contentment. This is where you find satisfaction in life, especially when you've lost so much. Let me say it like this. You're not going to find contentment. You're not going to find contentment in looking for things that you've lost already in life. And you're certainly not going to find it in the things that you hope to gain in life. Because contentment in life comes in your relationships. You see, even in your pain, even when you suffer loss, keep loving other people. And not just in the church, love strangers. Show hospitality to people. Take care of those that God brings across your path, especially to the believers in Jesus Christ. And if you put verse 2 back into context, when this was written, persecution had driven many of the believers from their homes. And those believers, they were depending on other Christians Christians to put them up for a night or two until they could find a place to stay, a place to live. So he's just telling them, show hospitality to these strangers, these believers who had been displaced from their very homes. Take care of them because who knows, you might even entertain angels without even knowing it. And that's what happened to Abraham, if you remember, in Genesis 18, when three strangers showed up at his home one day in the middle of the afternoon. Abraham and his wife prepared a meal for them, and it turned out to be the Lord and two of his angels. And that's the reference here in the Word of God. The men of the Old Testament who encountered heavenly beings... Men like Lot, men like Gideon. And the idea here is that when you practice hospitality, you may be helping a messenger of God without even knowing it. And the point of this text is not to really just sit there and make our focus on angels, but to say, if you show hospitality to strangers, you never know who you might meet. I'll tell you how one grandma lived out this verse. A young man forgot to tell his grandmother that he had changed his cell phone number right before Thanksgiving. And so Wanda Dench, she texted a number thinking it was still her grandson's inviting him over for a Thanksgiving meal. But instead of her grandson, the text went to this young man, Jamal Hinton. Well, Wanda and Jamal, they quickly figured out that things were not quite right, that there was a mistake, but he didn't have anywhere to go for Thanksgiving. So he asked, he said, hey, is it still possible for me to be able to get a plate? And Wanda responded like this. She said, of course you can, because that's what grandmas do. And they've spent the last three Thanksgivings together. Well, it shouldn't just be grandma, should it? It should be the church. The church, if we're going to live out our responsibility to love our neighbors, this is what Christians should be doing. Because you never know who God might bring across your path. Don't hesitate to show some hospitality. And by taking your eyes off of yourself and your own problems, you just might find that you helped yourself. 
What does 1 John 3 remind us? It says, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for who? The brethren. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but what? In deed and in truth. The most miserable people, the most miserable Christians that I have ever met are the ones who have never, ever learned to love others. The ones who have never learned to serve other people. Verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. When you're suffering, reach out and love others who are suffering. Care for those who are being persecuted. Care for those who are being mistreated. Reach out to people who are hurting just like you. Now, the author wrote this at a time when Christians were being imprisoned for their faith. Some were being beaten. Some were being robbed, assaulted, and humiliated. And caring for them meant bringing them food into the prisons. It meant bringing warm clothing for the cells that they were being held in. And the easy thing to do is go the other direction, isn't it? When someone's being arrested for their faith, you go the other direction. No, that's not what you do. You care for them. But it would have been the easy thing to stay away from the Christians under, under arrest. Otherwise, you could be put in prison too. See, God tells us, don't forget about those in prison, especially especially those in prison for their faith in Jesus Christ, because we are all part of the same body, the body of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us that. It says if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Their pain is your pain. Think of the last time that you stubbed your toe, or the last time maybe you hit your thumb with a hammer. Do you not even care about the pain when that happens because you think to yourself, hey, I don't need my toe or I don't need my thumb anyways. I don't care about it. Or do you, when you hurt your toe or your thumb, do you stop everything and squeal like a little girl because the pain in one part of your body directly affects everything? See, when a part of the body is in pain, the whole body feels it, doesn't it? You can't ignore it. And it should be, hear me on this, it should be that way within the body of Jesus Christ. Because when one of us suffers for the faith, we should all suffer. It shouldn't be ignored. It's not that we can take the pain away from another believer that another believer is going through. But boy, oh boy, you can absolutely pray for them. And you can help meet their needs and come alongside them and encourage them from the word of God. And so the author tells them back in Hebrews, remember those imprisoned in their faith? Well, it could happen to them. So remember those people. The reference here is actually not a reference to the body of Christ. The meaning is that they still lived in human bodies. They still had physical human bodies that they could suffer just like the people who were in prison. So stand with them now. But look at what he tells them next. If you want to find contentment, even when you're in pain, love strangers, love those who are suffering and love your spouse. Verse four, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Remain faithful to your mate. Direct your passions towards them. 
Let the marriage bed be held in honor. Let it be undefiled. He's talking about sex here within the context of marriage. And that is honorable. And that is pure. Sex is God's idea. It's a gift from God. It's God's wedding gift, a beautiful creation of God. But it is our sick and depraved culture that has perverted it. You know, back in 1896, one of the first movies ever shown to the public was called The Kiss. It outraged people. I mean, it was a scandal back in the day because it showed a couple giving a quick kiss. Absolutely disgusting, said one critic. Such things call for police action. Now, by the time we got to the 1990s, what happened? Well, primetime entertainment offered sexual remarks or behavior every four minutes. And it's estimated in our day that the average person, the average person watches every year on TV 14,000 sexual encounters. Nearly every one of those encounters involves unmarried people, and rarely are there ever any consequences. You see, on TV, no one ever gets herpes, no one ever gets AIDS, no one ever gets pregnant, no one has to change diapers, get up in the middle of the night, or struggle to raise a child without a father. And here is where this has left us as a nation. 42% of Americans describe themselves as sexually adventurous. 29% have sex on a first date. Men have an average of 20 partners in their lifetime. 40 million Americans watch porn often, often. 22% of married men and 14% of married women will cheat on their spouse. You see, it's our arrogance, isn't it? It's our pride. We've fallen as a nation, and in our pride, we have let the culture transform the church instead of the other way around. Sex in marriage is honorable, and it is pure. Keep it that way. Remain faithful to your mate, and don't ever take sex outside the context of marriage. And this includes porn. Why? Because sex outside of marriage, it will ruin you. Sex outside of marriage is sinful, it's destructive, but within the protective bonds of marriage, it can and should be glorifying to God. If you struggle with impure thoughts, if you struggle with porn, memorize this verse in Hebrews, because the scriptures could not be more clear that God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous person. And this includes porn users, because the Greek word translated here as fornicators in the New King James is the word pornos. It's where we get the word pornography from. And any sex outside of marriage, including fantasy sex, including fantasy sex is under God's judgment and it will ruin you. Samson, let's think about him for a second. Samson, a strong man, fully dedicated to God from birth, he lost his strength and his sight after messing around with Delilah. David, a man after God's own heart. We read that in Scripture. He was one of Israel's greatest kings, and he lost his son after messing around with Bathsheba. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he fell off the path, didn't he, of honoring God when he multiplied his wives and his concubines. None of these men lost their salvation, but their families and lives were scarred by their sexual immorality. 
Yes, there is forgiveness in the grace and mercy of God, but eventually your sin will find you out if you keep going down that path, if you keep going down that road. Romans 1 is very clear. It teaches the clear path of downward destruction because God gives men over to the lusts of their hearts. God allows men and women to dishonor their bodies, to chase after sin, and then reap the consequences if that's really what you want to do. So I'm telling you this morning, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, please heed the warnings, guard your thought life, take it seriously, guard what you watch with your eyes, guard it and become a person committed to their spouse. Michael Joyce, he's 68 years old and this guy is one of my heroes. He suffers from Alzheimer's and the disease is so advanced that he forgot he was married to his wife of 34 years. He is in love with her, and he is an honorable man. So recently he proposed to her, and she said yes. His wife, 64-year-old Linda Joyce, told the reporter, quote, you don't say, oh, we're already married. So I said, of course I will. Linda honestly didn't think her husband would remember but in the next morning, Michael woke up and asked her, he said, so when are we doing this? This is how she invited her friends to their second wedding. She said, my adored hubby of 38 years suffers from Alzheimer's. Two nights ago, out of the blue with tear-filled eyes, he asked me to marry him. Michael had clearly forgotten we are already married, but I absolutely went along with him and I said I would be delighted to be his wife. In spite of his confused mind, he obviously knows and feels this is something he really wants to do. To Michael, it will be our wedding ceremony. And to our friends and myself, a truly precious, memorable occasion. And on their wedding morning, Linda Joyce said she wasn't sure he would even remember then. But he woke up and told her, today's the day. The couple exchanged vows at a scenic lake near their home as friends looked on. They have been through sadness, pain, frustration. But Linda said that this day, despite all the fogginess in his mind, it was a day of pure joy. That's a beautiful picture for us of remaining faithful to your spouse, isn't it? For better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, until death do you part. Satisfaction is not found in another woman or another man. It is found in remaining faithful to the mate you already have. You see, God is looking for his people to be honest and faithful in their worship to him. And one of the ways that we do this is by being faithful and honest in our marriage to the spouse that he has given us to cherish. So you pray for your spouse. You honor your marriage and you teach your children before it's too late God's definition of marriage between a man and a woman. And you take a stand for the purity of the marriage bond. And men, one of your goals ought to be to leave your spouse stronger in her faith in Christ than when you first met her. And you certainly cannot do this by being unfaithful. This means loyalty. This means purity. It means finding contentment in your marriage. And you find contentment, Hebrews is telling us, not just there, but by loving strangers. Love those who suffer. Love your spouse. But most of all, love your Savior. Our next two verses. 
It says, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Times of service, times of suffering, they can be the same. See, times of suffering can be either times of selfishness where we have a pity party and we cry and we say, woe is me, or we can serve and we can get involved and serve Jesus Christ. Now, the two biggest issues that people fight about in marriage are sex and money. Trust me, I've been counseling couples for 22 years. Sex and money, those are the two biggest issues. And the author takes them both on. And there's a reason why he takes them both on. Because they come from the same root cause of wanting something that you don't have. You see, if you lust after people outside of marriage, what do you have? a covetous heart. If you constantly lust after more things, a bigger house, more stuff, more toys, you have a covetous heart. You're showing that you don't care about others. That selfish lust, your selfish greed in your mind is worth going after. And to be honest, the two go hand in hand. When you see someone struggle with greed, they likely also struggle with lust. Learn to trust in the sufficiency of God to meet your needs. Learn to trust even when you have just a little because it shows that you trust God to provide for your needs. Hoarding doesn't show that, does it, when we pile it on? If you're not content with what you have in your life, you're saying with your actions that God can't take care of you. Or at the very least, you're saying this. You're saying that God won't take care of you the way you want. Insecurity leads to the love of money for both the rich and the poor. It goes both ways. The only path forward is to trust God to meet all of our needs. Now, Jesus promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He won't abandon us is what it's teaching. He won't desert us when it gets bad. It's a strong statement here in the text. I wish you all could read it in the Greek. It's a beautiful statement. It could actually be translated like this. For he himself has said, I will absolutely not leave you nor forsake you under any circumstance. Hold to that. Hold to that. Now, the exact quote is taken from Deuteronomy 31, but Christ also promised to the 11 disciples when he told them in Matthew 28, he said, I am with you always even to the end of the age. You see, the presence of Jesus Christ is the greatest possession of the child of God. He's looking for us to have confidence and peace in the Savior. Love Jesus more than anything else. Remain devoted to him, not to money, not to things. The author is saying, don't love money because you have the Lord. In other words, you don't need gold when you have God. You don't need silver when you have the Savior. Being rich is not wrong. God does bless hard work, but recognize that just maybe God has blessed you so you can help to fund his work and be generous in your giving. You know, if you're on the other end of things, if you're struggling even to pay the bills, learn to honor God now with your finances, not when you think you're going to make it rich someday. Live within your means in times of trouble, in times of distress, it's tempting to think that money is always the answer. And if we just had more money, everything would be okay and it would solve our problems. It would bring satisfaction to our lives. 
But the truth is that money can make you more miserable, can it? If you're not already content with what you have, money can take you down a dangerous road. Time Magazine recently ran an article, and I was actually surprised to know Time Magazine's still out there. But Time Magazine ran an article on how winning the lottery actually makes you miserable. They call it the curse of the lottery. And they quoted Don McNay, a financial consultant to the lottery winners who said this, so many Powerball winners wind up unhappy or completely broke. People have had terrible things happen. People commit suicide. People run through their money. Easy come, easy go. They go through divorce or people die. They're just not ready for the upheaval. And then he said this, it's the curse of the lottery. Instead of making their lives better, it makes them worse. And the statistics show it. They back it up that 70% of people who suddenly receive a big windfall of cash in their lives, they will all lose it within a few years. Money is not the answer, is it? Money is definitely not the answer. So don't love money. Don't depend on money. Depend on Jesus Christ. See, no amount of money is going to be able to help you at the judgment seat of Christ unless you use it now for his glory. Money can't bring contentment. Money can't bring peace. Love God's people and use money. Don't love money and use people. Love the Lord and find your contentment in him because no matter what, he says right here, he'll never leave you. He'll always be there for you. Hebrews 4 already told us before, it said that, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we, yet without sin. And then hold to this. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the help of time of need. Pastor John Ortberg, he talks about a time when he went surfing and there was no one else in the water except for this huge guy that was on the beach and he was practicing martial arts. And John had been out there for a little while all by himself. And then this tiny little skinny kid came paddling up out of nowhere. And John couldn't believe the kid was out there by himself and the kid pulled up his board right next to him. But the boy was so small, he hardly needed a board at all. I mean, he was so skinny, he could have probably stood up on the ocean on a Frisbee. So the boy introduced himself as Shane and John asked him how long he'd been surfing. And the boy responded to him, seven years. Well, John was a little bit curious at this because he didn't look much older than seven years. So he said, how old are you? And young Shane said, I'm eight. Well, then John asked him how he got there. And Shane said, well, my dad brought me. And then he turned around and he waved at the near empty beach. The Goliath of a man that was doing martial arts waved back to Shane and said, hi, son. The Goliath of a man was Shane's dad. And then it hit John. That's why young Shane was so at home in the ocean. See, it wasn't his size. It wasn't his skill. It was the man that was sitting on the beach. His father was always watching and his father was very, very big. Shane wasn't alone. And see, the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing to you, Christian. Neither are you. You're not alone. So find peace in that. Find peace in the presence of your Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a courage that builds inside of God's people that comes from growing in faith and a deepening love and a hope that comes from Christ.
And that's why the author quotes Psalm 118. Since God is on our side, there's no reason to fear the persecution of men. Remember what Paul said? Paul said it this way. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verses 7 and 8 in Hebrews. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Those who rule over you, those who have spoken the word of God to you, I believe the context in which this was written is probably a reference to the Christian leaders who had already died. The verb tense here should be translated, not those who rule over you present tense, but your rulers, those men in the past who ruled over you past tense. It was the first leaders of the faith who had spoken the word of God to them. And the outcome of their faith, the outcome of their lives should inspire us to press on. Remember those who taught the word of God to you. And how do you remember them? And that's the beautiful thing here. It says, follow their faith. Imitate their faith as they follow Jesus Christ. Which puts verse 8 into context for us, doesn't it? That Christ gave us his grace, but the unchanging nature of the Son, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It tells us that the grace and faith by which these first Christians led, it was available to the first audience of this letter, and it stands open to us today, to those who walk by faith. In other words, trust Jesus like the men and women that have gone before. Christ does not change, praise God, but he sure changes his people who walk by faith. Church leaders will come and go in any church, but the living head of the church is ever present. And this should make us think of the words of Paul to the church of Corinth, where he said, imitate me just as I also imitate who? Christ. Because our faith, our faith is never in the men who lead us. Our faith is in the Savior who saved us. We remember the faith of those who have gone before. We remember how they lived out their lives. And then we rise up, and here's the challenge, to become that witness for the next generation that follows after. On October of 2011, Gordon Yeager, age 94, and his wife Norma, age 90, they died exactly one hour apart after 72 years of marriage. They were holding hands when they died. The couple had left their home in Marshalltown, Iowa to run some errands in town, but they never made it. And a car accident sent the couple to the emergency room with broken bones and a few other injuries. When they were transferred to intensive care, the nurses knew that they should not separate this couple. But even in the hospital, this couple, they were both more concerned about the other person. Their son, Dennis Yeager, said she was saying that her chest was hurting, and then she was saying this, what's wrong with dad? Even laying there like that, she was worried about dad. His back was hurting, but he was asking about her. He was asking about mom. And when it became clear that their condition was not improving, the nurses moved them into a room together, side by side, so they could hold hands. Gordon actually died at 3.38 p.m., holding hands with his wife as the family that they had built surrounded them. Listen to the words of Dennis again. He said, it was really strange because they were holding hands and dad stopped breathing. But I couldn't figure out what was going on because the heart monitor was still going. But we were like, he stopped breathing. How does he still have a heartbeat? Well, the nurse checked 
and said that that's because they're holding hands and it's going through them. Her heart was beating through him and picking it up on the monitor. At 4.38 p.m., exactly one hour after Gordon died, Norma passed too. I tell you that because you recognize love when you see it, and you also know it when you don't. But every beautiful picture that we paint of love comes short of the love of God that he has for us. You can't make another person love you. And hear me on this. You'll never find your need to be loved completely satisfied in another human being, in another person. Only the love of Jesus Christ is complete. Only the love of Christ is steady and unchanging in our lives. So first, look to him. Remember that the Lord is our helper, that he is the one who has promised us to never be left behind or nor forsaken and find your peace, find your contentment and identity in him. Then take what he's given you and be pure, be pure before him. Take his love and show it to others, always finding your contentment and purpose in Christ, knowing that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen and glory to God. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.